Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Good morning. Welcome to Orchards Community Church. We're so glad you're joining us. If you're here in the room or if you're joining online, I apologize. You weren't able to watch that last video. I can send you a link later, but we're not going to violate those copyright laws because we like to continue to stay on the internet. So that's good for us. But that raises kind of a neat point, something we're going to talk about today. Do we like arguing? Do we seek out confrontation? Because that's what we're going to see in this passage we're going to study today. Is Jesus intentionally doing that? So if you have your Bible, grab that. We're going to continue walking through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 14. We're going to look at a pretty big chunk of Scripture today, verses 1 to 14. And and this might look unusual. Sometimes I think we have this picture we've developed in our mind of Jesus, and it's that picture where we go, well, Jesus is so sweet, and Jesus is so nice, and so Jesus would never go and pick a fight or start an argument with somebody. And and if that's the way we think, I wonder if we've read the Bible. (laughs) Because that's a picture we're creating on our own, right? We're trying to fit Jesus in a box. And a lot of us do that because we're non-confrontational pacifists. But here's here's the reality. If we would be willing to go to someone who is trapped in a sin struggle, if we would be willing to go to someone who is blatantly telling a lie, that act of confrontation, it's actually a super loving thing to do. If we have the right motivation, okay? If we truly want the best for that person, if we love them well. But a lot of times we just won't do it, right? Because it doesn't feel right. That process of confronting someone, it just doesn't feel good. Story goes that Mahatma Gandhi, the famous Indian lawyer and political ethicist, he was famous for espousing nonviolent resistance. Gandhi was a huge influence on Nelson Mandela and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so he was a guy who wasn't going out and picking very many fights, right? Story goes, he had a a very prejudiced professor while he was in college at the College of London. And Gandhi and this professor would often butt heads. And then without raising his voice, without starting an argument, Gandhi would always seem to get the better of this professor. And it, it really frustrated him. And one day, the professor thought he had the opportunity to, to win an argument against Gandhi, and he came up with this scenario, and he, and he asked him in front of the whole class, if you were wandering along the streets, and you found a bag, and you opened up the bag, and inside were two smaller bags, and one bag was full of wisdom, and one bag was full of money, which would you take? And Gandhi immediately said, I'd take the money. <laughs> the professor thought he had it. He said, I know that I would choose the wisdom. And Gandhi said, well, it's always been said, we take what we don't have. Ouch. Ouch. Are we comfortable confronting people like that? What we're going to see in this section of text today is Jesus intentionally confronting some people. And these are religious people. These people thought they had everything all figured out, but they didn't have a relationship with God. It was by grace, through faith in Jesus. So truly, they needed to be confronted. They were lost, and they needed to face reality, and Jesus was more than willing to help, right? As we jump in, I want to do just a a little review. We've been in Gospel of Luke together for a a long time. It's a historical sort of biography of Jesus, right? And Luke is making this record of where Jesus went, what he taught, who he interacted with, how they responded to him. 
Our first week of this study, which was a year and a half ago, we saw this was funded by a wealthy benefactor named Theophilus. And this guy who is writing is Luke. He's a medical doctor, but he's also an historian. And because of that generous financial gift, he's taken this time to spend time traveling, interviewing people, asking them questions. He was the man on the street. So what did Jesus teach? What did he do for you? How did he heal you? What exactly transpired in this ministry that he was doing while he was here on earth before his death and burial and resurrection and ascension? And so those questions and answers, those interactions Jesus had, the stories he told, they make up this book of the Bible. And one key thing that we see over and over again is this conflict between Jesus and religious people. Specifically, it was a group of people called the Pharisees. And not all the Pharisees were bad guys, but man, they were committed to a cause. They were willing to stand their ground. They were going to put up a fight because they were so positive they were right about their convictions. But ultimately, what we see is so many of their convictions took the opposite side of Jesus. And so we know they were wrong, right? They had these misplaced passions. They ended up becoming rule makers, rule keepers outside of scripture. And a lot of times, some of them we see they ended up attacking Jesus. Now these Pharisees, they weren't professional theologians. So a lot of times we see them hanging out with a group of lawyers. Pharisees didn't have any advanced theological training, but the lawyers did. The lawyers weren't like lawyers we're thinking of today that are trial lawyers, courtroom lawyers. These guys were lawyers because they were experts in the law, the Old Testament law. And so the Pharisees, the lawyers, they're running around together. And, and if we're thinking about it in today's terms, they'd be the people who are like policing everybody's social media, right? They're listening to everybody's podcasts. They're trying to find things they can pounce on because people aren't obeying the law the way they think they should be. And one of their big, big issues became the Sabbath. They had huge issues with how people would observe the Sabbath. Their big question was, well, where did the true authority come from for observing this day of rest, the Sabbath day? And the Pharisees' argument was that the authority came from the Old Testament, right, from the Torah, plus their tradition, their experience, the the man-made rules that they wanted to add in. Well, Jesus comes along, and what does he do? He immediately wants to throw out the man-made stuff. He says, no, let's just focus on the book, right? So the Sabbath observance, that's a big issue for the Pharisees. And they had other hobby horses too. One of them, a big one for them, concerned the company people would keep. Who do you hang out with? Now, honestly, that's a very, very important question for us today as well. And it was back in the time. Scripture tells us this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. You remember this one? Bad company corrupts good morals. So we know there's a caution there, right? But as Christ followers, we have a call to be ambassadors, to be witnesses in this world. So we have to figure out how to reconcile a verse like that with the notion that we are supposed to go into the world. We're supposed to be out there shining a light, sharing the gospel. So how can we be a friend of sinners without falling into the sins of our friends? That's a real challenge. Now, the Pharisees thought they had it all figured out, but they came up with a safe answer. Well, we'll just avoid sinners, right? (laughs) We'll just avoid those people altogether. Avoid the world. Well, Jesus showed up to be a light in the world. You remember what the Pharisees called him? A drunkard, a glutton. Was it because Jesus was out there eating or drinking to excess? No, but it was the people he hung out with. Those folks were. So why was Jesus hanging out with them? Because those were the folks who desperately needed Jesus. So church, there's a ton of application and caution for us 
in this world. Because I guarantee if we are out in the world, we're going to find people who struggle mightily with sin issues. They don't understand God's plan for their lives. And they need to hear about Jesus. And the church is kind of pushing those people away instead of inviting them in and sharing the gospel with them. This is a serious issue. It's very plainly we're going to see in this text. Jesus is more than willing to love people where they are. Okay? He's more than willing to be a friend of sinners. But he does that thing that some of us don't do so well. He's going to confront sin. He doesn't give sinners a pass. You never once see Jesus saying, no, it's okay. Just keep messing around in that area where you're totally wrong. Right? What we see Jesus boldly teaching is, I'm going to confront that sin because I love you. He did this in John chapter 8, famously, with this woman who was caught in adultery. Hope I'm not breaking any new news to you. Adultery is a sin, right? So this woman, she shouldn't be walking around after experiencing this love and grace and mercy from Jesus. She can't be preaching that message. See, it's okay. It's okay to be an adulterer. I'm perfectly fine because Jesus showered mercy on me. No, that's not the takeaway. I hope that she went and followed what Jesus taught her. After she received the mercy. You remember this story? This is John 8, verse 11. Jesus asked this woman if any one of the crowd of folks who were there who wanted to stone her to death had publicly condemned her. And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. But wait, there's more. (laughs) He's not done teaching, right? He says, go. From now on, sin no more. So what do we see in this text? Jesus is more than willing, he's more than loving to confront sin. Why? Because he wants the best. He desires the very, very best for us. He desires that for everybody, even his enemies. Because that's who he's dealing with here in Luke 14. Follow along on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. This passage starts this way, verse 1. It happened that when Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath, that's important, to eat bread... They were watching him closely. And there in front of Jesus was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered, he spoke to the lawyers, to the Pharisees, and he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He throws a question out there. Nobody answers. Verse 4, but they kept silent. And so Jesus took a hold of this guy in front of him, the guy who had dropsy, and he healed him and sent him away. And he circles back. Verse 5, he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? Their response is the same. Verse 6, they could make no reply to this. Now, I referenced that story in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, because many theologians believe that situation was a setup, right? They think potentially the Pharisees sent a guy to be caught in the act because what we notice is only the woman was brought. And it would have had to have been two, right? So they think it was a setup to create this situation to trap Jesus. Well, a lot of commentators and theologians think this encounter in Luke 14 was a setup as well. Because Jesus was an invited guest. He was invited to this dinner. Now, I'll just say this, because this is just me. I don't care if they were promising bottomless Diet Coke and peanut butter. I wouldn't have gone to this party, right? <laughs> I wouldn't have take, taken that invitation because all they were going to do is argue, Right? Who wants to sign up for that? I wildly avoid most of the comment sections on the news sites and social media because all people are there to do is argue. They're looking for a fight. Jesus went to this dinner and maybe these folks found this guy with dropsy and invited him on purpose to put him right in front of Jesus to see what he would do. 
We don't know. But if they did that, I'm going to say that, that's pretty twisted, right? That's pretty mean. Because this guy with this condition, he would have been in obvious misery. He would have been in physical pain. Now, Jesus, loving as he does, Jesus having the ability to heal people, he would have certainly addressed that. And if you think about it, Jesus could have avoided this confrontation. He could have if he wanted to. He could have pulled old Dropsy Dan to the side and dropped him one of his business cards and said, hey, hit me up on my cell after dark. (laughs) I'll heal you then. Hey, hit me on Instagram tomorrow and I'll come heal you. He could have totally done that. But he didn't. Why? Because then he wouldn't have been able to confront this situation he wants to confront anyway. To heal this point he's trying to make. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he knows how the Pharisees are going to respond, right? Because he knows they're leaning in on the Torah plus their man-made laws. And so he wants to address this astounding hypocrisy here. Remember what the definition of hypocrisy is? Saying one thing, doing another. So Jesus just masterfully confronts them. He kind of paints them into a corner with this question. You think you should heal somebody on the Sabbath or not? And let's be honest, nobody wants to come off all anti-healing, right? That makes us look like bad people. We're mean people if we say I'm against healing. But at the same time, they've all got these little black books where they've written their amendments to the Torah, and they don't want to throw those out either, right? They've got big lists about what constitutes work and what doesn't constitute work on the Sabbath. And if they come out pro-healing, they've got to throw their book away. We know they're not going to do that. So now they're stuck. And Jesus asked this question, and you know how I like to picture the things that are going on in the Bible. I, I imagine him asking him this question and then like going and getting in the buffet line and just leaving him out there like, do you think it's okay? And then he just leaves that awkward silence. Or Bueller, anyone? Bueller? And, and, and like, I hope he does it for like 30 minutes or so. <laughs> just everybody sitting there twiddling their thumbs. They don't know what to do. I don't know how long it takes, but he, he finally lets him off the hook, right? After he performs this healing miracle, he cures this poor guy of the condition. But then he asks a follow-up question, and it goes like this. He says, okay, let's say hypothetically it's Saturday, which was the seventh day for them. That's the day they would have observed as their Sabbath day. Traditionally, we've changed that now to Sunday. Sunday is recognized as the Sabbath day because Sunday is the first day. That's the day we gather together to worship. We give of our first fruits. So that's the way we view that now. But traditionally, back when Luke was writing this, Saturday would have been viewed as the Sabbath day. And so Jesus says, okay, you're walking along on the Sabbath, and you would have needed to find a good reason to even be doing that. You're walking along with your son, and he's not paying attention to where he's going, and he falls into a well. What are you going to do? Silent. And wait for Lassie to come by? Ruff, ruff, Timmy fell in the well. You know, I mean, what are you going to do, literally? Are you going to go look down in the well and go, hey, hope that water's not too deep. I'll be back with a rope tomorrow. <laughs> He knows nobody would do that, right? You're not going to leave your son in the well. And so he lowers the bar a little bit. He says, okay, it's not your son. Pretend it's your ox. You're walking along with your ox. Ox is an expensive animal, right? Ox is your companion there on the farm. He's a worker for you. The ox falls in. Are you going to leave him? And he knows the answer to this. He knows that in practicality, they're not going to say, I would leave him. They would fish the son out. They would fish the ox out. But if they answer that, that's why they're stone-cold silent. It would reveal their hypocrisy. And Jesus knows this already anyway, right? He accepted the dinner invitation because he wanted to confront this type of hypocrisy. And so he asks the questions, but in the middle, he takes a break to heal this guy. I don't want us to throw that away. That part's important. He heals old Dropsy Dan, and I doubt it's because Dropsy Dan is begging to be healed, right? I think Jesus throws it in as a picture of salvation. 
Now, it doesn't surprise me that Luke includes this because I think this is medically interesting to Luke, right? He's a doctor. And dropsy, I researched it this week. It's a, it's a weird condition. We were able to treat it much, much better now with modern medicine. But, but it's this condition where the body just retains water and it leads to swelling in your joints and aches and pains and eventually organ failure. Like if it would be left untreated, you would die from it and it would be a horrible, horrible death. Lots of commentators think the Apostle Paul suffered from dropsy. As you're reading Paul's stuff, you know he'll write sometimes, hey, I'm not much to look at, right? I suffer from this affliction. And people think that might have been what Paul struggled with. But I think this is just a great picture of salvation. Jesus takes a hold of this guy and heals him. And then what does he do? He sends him out. That's what he does for us. He takes a hold of us and he heals us. And then we're sent out. So this is a huge blessing for old Dropsy Dan, right? It's a double blessing because not only is he healed of this physical condition, but now he gets to get out of this awkward dinner party where he's sitting around in silence. So it's good for him, but, but he does that because Jesus is all confrontational. Now, this is super important for us, for our application. Who did Jesus love in this passage? And, and at first glance, it's like, well, Dan, he loved the guy with dropsy because he healed him. He sent him out. And I think that's right. I think he truly did. But can we consider the fact that he also loved the Pharisees? It was just tough love. He loved them enough to expose their hypocrisy. He loved them enough to go to this dinner that he knew was a setup. He ate a meal with them because he loved them. When we say Jesus is willing to be a friend of sinners, that doesn't just mean the drunkards and the gluttons. It also means self-righteous people. Jesus will hang out with any kind of sinner. It makes no difference to him. But what he is accomplishing is this confronting of people's hypocrisy. And he does it because he's loving. He does it because he wants the very best for people. Press on. In verses 7 through 11, we're going to see Jesus confront the sin of pride. Ooh, this one's tough. And he does it in a really fitting way. Kind of turns the tables here. Instead of having the Pharisees observe him, looking for ways that he might stumble or make a mistake, this time he's observing the Pharisees. He's going to try and catch them in a prideful moment. It doesn't take too long. Follow along starting verse 7. He began speaking a parable to all these invited guests to the dinner when he noticed how they'd been picking out the places of honor at the table. And he said to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. Why? For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by this host, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, hey, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. No, he says, when you're invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, oh, friend, move up higher. Isn't that a deep picture? Then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Verse 11 is the, the cap. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I think a lot of us have memorized verse 11. We, we know that one, but do we understand the context? And the reality is, if we're being honest, we struggle in this area. It is hard to be humble in this world. So Mac Davis sing, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when I'm perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. <laughs> to know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. See, that's not, that's not right, is it? It's not. 
It's not a good picture. Do we have a strategy to be more humble? Sir Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during the Second World War, he had a practical tip to remind himself to be humble. And it came about, one of his cabinet members asked him, oh my goodness, Mr. Churchill, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the auditorium is packed, the hall is packed, wherever you're speaking, it's packed. He said, it's quite flattering, but whenever I feel that way, I always remember that instead, if I were not there to give a political speech, but instead I was there to be hanged, there'd be twice as many people. <laughs> Do we have a strategy like that? Have we identified intentional ways to remind ourselves to be humble? We haven't come up with one on our own yet. Jesus gives us some pointers here to combat our pride. He combats the pride of the Pharisees. And he calls this a parable, and it really doesn't fit like all the other parables that we see in Luke. But it is a parable in that it contains a truth that we got to dig for a little bit. That's the way with many of the parables. We have to really unearth the true meaning. But the takeaway is if we're invited to a party, or here it's a wedding in this case, if we're invited to any kind of group or organization, it's wise when we go in to display humility. Jesus says it's wise to walk in and seek out the poorest seat. Because that's going to look so much better if the host or the leader of whatever event we're going to comes to us and literally says, oh, no, 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 don't sit in that dreadful seat. I got a much better seat for you. Come sit here. That looks so much nicer than taking the best seat and getting kicked out, right? Can you imagine going to a wedding and they always reserve the first couple rows for the family and you walk in and just go sit in the front row? <laughs> and the wedding coordinator comes <laughs> It's for the father of the bride, big boys. <laughs> you know, that's going to look embarrassing if you have to scoot back. That's what he's saying here. What you need to do instead of seeking the best seat is something that's very, very hard for us. Why don't you seek the worst seat? None of us want the worst seat, right? We may know we don't deserve the best seat, but we don't want that worst seat. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Now, here's what I want to tell you about the worst seat, okay? It's potentially awesome. Because the worst seat offers you the very best opportunity for promotion. I was thinking about that this week, and this is years and years ago when I had cartilage in my knees. That's how long ago it was. Right after I got out of college, I used to own a sporting goods store in Missouri. Many of you know my, my backstory. And, and right after I got out of college, man, I played a lot of softball. I sponsored the team through the sporting goods store, and we played in the Parks and Rec League. And then I played as many tournaments as I could on the weekend. I just loved playing. I wasn't quite ready to give it up yet. And, and many years, we had really good teams because I had a lot of connections through the store. I had a lot of coaches who would come in, and those guys were good athletes. But then I had a real neat connection. One of my good buddies coached junior college basketball at a community college pretty close to us. And when kids would get done playing for him, if they weren't quite good enough to go on and play at a four-year school, a lot of them would transfer to Southeast Missouri State, which is where I graduated and was right down the street from the sporting store. But they weren't going to play college sports anymore, but they were still athletes, right? They're still super competitive. They were looking for something to play. So I'd get them to play on my basketball team and on my softball team. So we were pretty good. And so I would coach this team, and, and very magnanimously, I would make the lineup out, and I would bat myself last. That was my sacrifice for the team. You know, and, and I made a big deal out of it. Like, I took a lot of pride in batting myself last. I didn't feel like I was the worst hitter. It was like, well, nobody wants to hit last, I'll do it. And so I would go and kind of boast to my buddies about how I was batting myself last. And I remember one of my good friends, and he worked for me, and he was the best player on our team by far. And it was slow-pitch softball. It's not hard to hit a slow-pitch softball because they throw it to you underhanded. Uh, and, but, but Larry was a great hitter, and he was fast. Everything he hit was a double or triple. And I hit a ton, but everything I hit was a single because 
I am not fast. <laughs> I was not fast when I had cartilage in my knees, and I'm certainly, you know, and, and so the problem was I would bat myself last. And I remember doing that for the first four or five games of the season, and then we went to a tournament, went to our first tournament that year, and I had a phenomenal tournament. I, 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 we had played five games. I think I went 19 for 20, 19 singles. <laughs> but, but the problem was my buddy Larry batted leadoff, and so the start of the game, he'd hit a double or triple, whatever. Then every time he came up to bat after that, there I was standing on first base slowing him down. Now we're only moving base to base because big boy's on the base, right? And, and so he came to me after that first tournament and he was like, dude, you can't bat last anymore. <laughs> now I was a brand new Christ follower and I thought this is my moment. This, you know, I've been so humble and now someone is coming to promote me, right? You can't bat last. You're such a great hitter. He says, you can't bat last. You're so slow. I don't know that you should play at all because <laughs> you were gumming up. We, we got all the speed on this team, so you can't bat last, but you certainly you can't bat in front of me is what he was saying, right? <laughs> I had taken so much pride in batting last. I thought that was the humble thing to do. When in reality, I was all about myself. The ultimate lesson of this strange little parable there in verse 11 is that it goes against the grain of our pride. It goes against the grain of this culture we live in. We so often are seeking out the best seat, right? We really desire the honor and the glory and the privilege instead of humbling ourselves so that someone else can come along and exalt us, or much more importantly, so that God can exalt us. So the application question is, what are we doing? What steps are we taking to remind ourselves to be humble? Do we have a strategy like Winston Churchill? Or maybe we need someone to come along like my buddy Larry did and lovingly confront us in this area. I don't know how loving Larry was. <laughs> Old-time baseball fans might remember a guy by the name of Ralph Kiner. Ralph Kiner, Hall of Famer, phenomenal baseball player. Played the vast majority of his baseball career with the Pittsburgh Pirates. At the height of his career, Kiner led the National League in home runs seven consecutive seasons. Unheard of. He was a great, great hitter. 1952 was the last of those years. He only hit 37 home runs that year. It was the lowest total he'd ever hit to lead the league. He was at the end of his prime. And he went to the general manager of the Pirates, another pretty famous baseball name you might recognize, Branch Rickey, instrumental in bringing Jackie Robinson into the big leagues. Ralph Kiner goes to Branch Rickey at the end of this seven consecutive seasons leading the league in home runs, and he asked for a raise. And I don't know how loving Branch Rickey was, but Branch Rickey said, no, <laughs> no raise. And Ralph Kiner said, I've led the league in home runs seven years in a row. And Branch Rickey said, what was our record last year? Pirates had finished eighth in an eight-team National League. Their record was 42-112-1. It's like a typical Mariner season. And the Mariners are doing so good. Two and a half games out of the wild card. I love the Mariners this year. But, but it was a bad season, right? And, and Branch Rickey lovingly confronted Ralph Kiner. He said, I can finish last without you. Ralph Kiner went. What was he doing? He was looking for that seat of honor, right? He shot himself in the foot. Next year, Branch Rickey traded him. <laughs> traded him to the Chicago Cubs. Kiner never led the league in home runs again. Started the end of his career. When we need it, do we know people like Jesus, like Branch Rickey, like my buddy Larry, who will intentionally confront us, who will love us enough to help us die to our hypocrisy, to help us die to our pride? Do we know folks who will love us that much, even when it's uncomfortable to come tell us things? Man, I hope we do. 
Finally, Luke closes out his passage. This is verses 12 to 14. Here we see Jesus confronting those who choose to use people instead of loving people. Here's the scenario. And Jesus went on to say to the one who had invited him, he's speaking to the host of the party, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return. If they do that, that's going to be your repayment. Verse 13 says, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. How are we going to be blessed? He says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So when Jesus goes to confront this sin of hypocrisy, he addressed the Pharisees. He addressed the lawyers. When he wants to target pride, who does he target? It's the invited guests. Here he specifically rebukes the person who is throwing the party because Jesus feels the guest list included a bunch of people this host was using, not loving. Let me be very clear on this. Jesus is never saying, hey, don't have a dinner and invite your friends and your family over. <laughs> it's not exactly what he's trying to teach you. The point is, it's not really sacrificially generous. It's not really loving to throw a big old party hoping that others will return the favor. If you throw a party because you're hoping someone will have a big old party at their house and invite you, that's not it, right? If we invite someone over for dinner to our house because we think, man, if I do that, they might offer me a job or they might give me an opportunity. If that's our motivation, Jesus says we're selfish. We're not sacrificial. That's not the mark of a Christ follower. Christ followers are supposed to want to serve others. Why are we supposed to want to serve others? Because we love God. That'll enable us to love others. We're not supposed to do that because any fringe benefits we might get. And there's a pretty easy test, it's easy to say at least, to determine if our motives are right when we're doing anything, but, but especially in this scenario, when we're serving Christ. It's the test I failed miserably when I was making the lineup out and putting myself last. Can we ask ourselves this one question? Am I hurt when I don't get the recognition I think I deserve? See, I wanted somebody like my buddy Larry to come to me and say, oh, James, you don't need to bat last because you're good. You're a good hitter. You shouldn't bat last. That's not your spot, right? Instead, he said, you're slow. <laughs> I wouldn't even play myself if I were you. But, but that's the question we can ask. Am I hurt when I don't get the recognition I think I deserve? I, 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 I. That, that's hard to say out loud. But can we ask that question? Because it's a good one to check our spirit, to check our motivation. Instead, will I think about others? Will I think about the least of these? the poor, the marginalized, the hurting? Well, I think of them before I think of myself. Because the text tells us if we do that, we're going to receive this tremendous reward when Jesus returns. So church, let's do that. Let's be the people who love people in the way God desires instead of using people to try and promote ourselves. Heavy on sports analogies today. We'll close with this one because I've been blessed to spend a bunch of time in sweaty locker rooms and on bus rides and in gyms. And, and the reality is in a situation like that, everybody needs to clean up, right? Everybody is ripe. Everybody smells. We all need a shower. How helpful would it be to focus on one guy? Pick out the smelliest of the smelly guys and go, man, let's aim all our attention at him. This bus ride would be so much better if Mike would take a shower, right? Have you smelled Tom? Tom stinks like, oh my goodness, he, he stinks on ice. Is that helpful? No. Why? Because I stink too. <laughs> Everybody stinks. 
I might smell a little better than Tom, but I still smell. When this passage, Luke is explaining that in this world, we could all stand to be confronted with the fact that we're kind of smelly. We could all benefit from someone loving us enough to tell us something that might be awkward, but that we need to hear. I'll never forget this situation. Christina and I had gone to an open house thing at a church back in Missouri. And it was like from two to four open house. And we had something else going on that day. And so we showed up like at 355, tail end of the thing. And we walk in and this really sweet lady in our church, gracious lady, she was there and she was kind of introducing everybody that came in to the people they were honoring, whatever. And, and, And I remember walking up and she had this big, huge splooge of red lipstick on her teeth. Like on her two front teeth, I mean, like it was just covered in this red lipstick. And I was like, oh, hey, nice to see you. Oh, by the way, you got a little lipstick on your teeth. She's mortified, you know. And she, she runs off and she grabs something and she cleans it off. And she comes back to me and she goes, I put my lipstick on right before this started at 2 o'clock. So she'd stood there for two hours, everybody walking in, and nobody told her about the lipstick on her teeth. Why didn't they tell her? Because we don't like to confront people. Wouldn't you rather know? There's illustrations I could use here about stuff hanging out of your nose. But you get the picture, right? You know what? If that's you, you hope someone loves you enough to tell you that, right? What we need to do is open up God's word and get clean. We need to study what God is teaching us and and use that and just scrub ourselves up, get behind the ears, get in that belly button, and, and really get clean. We have to be willing to do that ourselves. Here's what we can't do, okay? We can't hear a message like that and say, oh, thank you, Pastor James. My wife really needed to hear that. Thank you, Pastor James. My husband will really benefit from that. My boss or my coworkers or my kids, my siblings, whatever. That's not the picture, right? I smell. So I need to clean up. We have to have the right attitude here. I hope at the end of this we say, Lord, expose my hypocrisy. Lord, show me my selfish pride. Lord, reveal to me how I'm using people instead of loving people. Show me how I'm not loving the least of these. I'll tell you this, if each one of us will do that individually, oh my goodness, that's going to make this bus ride and this life that we're on a whole lot sweeter smelling. I guarantee it. And God's going to get the glory. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. God bless you. Let's pray. Daddy, help us to take a challenge like this to heart. There's so much we can learn about the way that we apply the things you're teaching in this world. You put us in this world, this fallen place. We're fallen people, and we are going to wade into humanity, into a bunch of folks who are struggling with sin issues, maybe just like some of the things we're struggling with. Will we love people enough to tell them they got lipstick on their teeth? Will we love people enough to, to expose pride and hypocrisy and things that we can see, not from a judgmental attitude, But God, because we love people, we want the best for them. And would we then welcome someone who would love us that much and come and confront us in an area where we we may have a blind spot. We may need somebody to help us. God, help us to be that church. And God, again, if we do that and we do that well, that's not going to be an honor for us because we were so smart we came up with it. God, that's going to be glory for you. Reveal that to us, Lord. We need it. We love you and we praise you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. 
You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care and God bless.